1 Peter chapter 1, 1-7. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, the king. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus the King, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the King. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus the King. Thank you, Christina. If you'll take out that... Community news and information and in, on the inside. Is anyone not close enough to one of these to see it? Does anybody need one of these? Okay. Sorry, we did run out of bulletins again. That was my fault. I, I had us print more, but we had more people in the first service than we thought again. So, um, yeah, I guess that's good news, but I'd leave some of you for sharing bulletins. Uh, uh, let me pray, and we're going to look at First Peter. Well, we're really going to look at First Peter 1.3, but we'll look at the, the part around it, too. Jesus... You are living hope with us now, empowering us yesterday, today, forever. Pray that you would open our eyes, and in spite of our ability to filter out hard things or things that might expose us, and in spite of our inability to communicate clearly, would you help us by the power of your Spirit understand the impact of your resurrection in our life just a little bit more. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to go to the communion table in a moment, in a few minutes. Uh, and sometimes we think about communion as looking back to what Christ has done. That is true, that is good, that is right. Also, we want to be mindful that we are actually, uh, uh, that we are aware that J- the living Jesus is the one who actually is serving us. I mean, we, we, it's served through the hands of our deacons and elders, but I want us to think in terms of the living, risen Christ being the one saying, I give my grace to you. I give my grace to you again and again and again. And that is rooted in what we're seeing in this passage right here, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the King, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead. We have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead. If you have trusted to Christ, that is a true reality about you. Something from outside of you has acted upon you to place you in something called this living hope. Whether we are aware of it or not, sometimes we're aware of it, a lot of times I'm not, but sometimes we are. And when we are, that holds the capacity for great power in our life in the moment and in the future. 
And if you are, have not yet trusted to Christ, I, I want you to understand that like, that is part of what is on offer to us from Jesus in the gospel, which is why he says, come and trust me. I want to give you this thing called this living hope. I want to bring you into this living hope. We're going to look at that a little bit today. And, and as we do that, we can then say together in confidence that we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead. And I want to just spend a couple minutes on this Easter morning exploring that verse. We're not going to exhaust this passage. It's, it's a really rich passage. It's, in fact, verse 3 to verse, I think, 11 in the Greek is one sentence. Peter can't stop talking. He doesn't know where to put the punctuation. He's like, he's falling all over himself like, and this, and this, and this, and this. It's like this huge run-on sentence. It would be terrible in English class, but he doesn't know where to pause because it's so good. And we're just looking at that, really that bolded part. According to his great mercy, God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead. So I want to encourage you to spend this week with the rest of that passage if you want to. Meditate on it, memorize it, think through it. I want to explore this living hope that was given to a group of Christians in the Roman provinces who were persecuted. They were tired. They were impoverished. They were struggling. They were uncertain for the simple reason that they refused to worship Caesar as the ultimate Lord and King. They said, we'll be great Roman citizens. We'll do everything you want. We'll abide by the laws. We'll support. We'll pay our taxes. We'll do all of those things except... We will not bow the knee to Caesar as the absolute Lord and King. And that was the one thing Caesar could not put up with. And so life was very difficult for these folks. And it's to that group of people that Peter says, you've been born again into a living hope. So if you're in Jesus, that is a reality about you. Whatever else might be true in your life, however difficult or easy, the other reality is, you have been born into something called a living hope. Three questions to get at this. Why is it through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Two, what exactly is it? And three, how do we access it practically? Why through the resurrection? What is it? And how do we access it? But before that, I want to do just a basic review of the resurrection, the theology of the resurrection. If you were here Friday night, we celebrated, perhaps that's the right word, we joyfully lamented Christ's death on a cross. Right, it's, it's tragic and beautiful all at the same time. So Jesus on Good Friday dies on a cross, taking on his shoulders the due and just penalty of sin for all those who are his, taking, uh, taking that to himself so that if you're in Christ, you never have to. In fact, you cannot take the just result of your sin, the death and alienation, the full death and alienation, you cannot take it to yourself if you're in Jesus because he has. And he, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally valuable, is crushed by that sin and he ends up dead. His body lays in the grave for Saturday and early on Sunday morning through this majestic Trinitarian work, the Father by the power of the Spirit, raises the son from the dead. And somehow, even maybe in John 2, it seems like Jesus has part in that. We're not quite sure how all that works, but it seems like there's this Trinitarian work. And then, after that, Jesus appears for the next 40 days to hundreds of people. 
teaching. It's not private. It's not secret, right? Christianity is not based on some secret knowledge, but upon a historical event. And uh, it's, it's out in the open. And so that's just sort of the, the order of the resurrection. And we're mindful, the Scripture teaches, that that mirrors our resurrection, our process too. Here's why this is important. For those of you who are in Jesus by faith, if that is you, we are all going to breathe our last breath at some point. It's, this is, cannot be more applicable to us. That reality is very close to our congregation right now. So I want you to, this is what will happen to you specifically. Here it is. If you're in Christ, when you die, part of you called the soul goes to be with the Lord immediately. Now, let me pause there. We tend to think of soul because there's sort of this nascent Gnosticism running through Western thinking of the body is bad and spirit is good and, you know, the, the spirit is the real us and the body is not the real us. That's not the way the, body, the, the Scripture talks about the soul and the body. The body is the real you. The soul is the real you. It's just the soul is the, we might say, in a scientific age, the immaterial part of you. But soul is really us, really us. Therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So he's saying, when I am away from the body, that means when he breathes his last breath, he will be at home with the Lord. In Philippians 1, he actually says, it's better. I like that idea better, but I'm going to remain and be fruitful here. And so theologians talk about three different types of states that we, are, we exist in. One is the, the present state, the intermediate state, and the future state. The present state is for those of us here in this room. Body and soul together, though still subject to corruption and decay. Body and soul together. That's the present state. The intermediate state is when we breathe our last breath, the soul goes to be with the Lord immediately, and the body return, the elements of the body return to the earth. Again, that's not because the body is bad and the soul is good. In fact, I did notice in the song we sang, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Charles Wesley writes, once he died, our souls to save, alleluia. Um, that's true, but it's just not true enough. He died to save our souls and our bodies. Okay? Because the, the final state is at the return of Christ, the, the body and the soul reunited and restored on this earth, in a renewed earth. That's why Revelation 21, you see the holy city coming down, and it touches down, and it just brings everything back to life and beyond. Picturing the Garden of Eden, but bigger and brighter and better, and it's, it's more imaginable than we can think. Uh, it is joy unimaginable. So the physical is good. We will the, the permanent state, the f- final state, is us living in our bodies, renewed bodies in a renewed earth. I don't know how old we will be in those bodies. I don't know how much body fat percentage we'll have in those bodies. Right? I don't know. We don't. We're not told. But it said it's glorious. Right? This is a 
good thing. This final state is full. And so we as Christians, we are not those who despise what is physical. We treasure it knowing that one day the Lord will renew it and restore it all the way. So present state, intermediate state, final state. The intermediate state is very temporary. It's very short, even if it's hundreds of years, right? And when, that's how the math works, right? Over if eternity is on the bottom, what is that, the divisor? I don't know. But like, it just, it's a, poor, a very small fraction of eternity, right? So that the intermediate state for everyone is a temporary, short, by comparison, state. The final, permanent state is the eternal state. Okay? That is how our resurrection in Christ mirrors Christ's own resurrection. Now, why does this living hope, which we get to, come through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? It's because in the resurrection, something new has happened. For the first several years of starting this church, for most of half of January and almost all of February and half of March, for the first several years, I would just kind of scan my seminary alumni page for open pulpits in Florida. Not because I didn't like the church or Indy. It's just I cannot stand February in this state. It is so gray and so cold. And before we took elders, you know, you feel kind of alone. And, and I was just like, man, I bet there's something in Tampa, Naples, Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton, somewhere, you know. And I never, yeah, thankfully I never actually applied, but I was so tempted because February was so long. Because you think oh, it's only 28 days. It's a short month, but because it's cold and gray, and there's like one day or two days in February where it's like, it'd be like 52 degrees, right, and everybody's with shorts and flip-flops walking outside, like, maybe we're, some, you know, spring is coming early this year, yay, and then a week later, it's like negative 10 and 10 inches of snow. I just, it, it captures you, and then it breaks your heart. This is what February is. Um, and I remember one of the, in the early days of the church, we were meeting on Saturday night, and one of our elders, Mike Spencer, got up to pray. Mike was in the first service uh, today. And it was one of those, like, everybody was done with winter, but winter was not done with everybody, right? It had gotten warm, and then there was a cold snap, and there was just dumped like a foot of snow, and then it was just gray and cold and frozen. If you remember those early days at that church at 10th and Ritter, like the, it's probable that the heat wasn't working. It was just miserable. And Mike Spencer stands up, and I never forget what he said, because I remember now. We've said it many times in our house. Mike says, friends, winter is losing its grip. And he was right because it was the end of February. And you could have walked outside that night and said, it doesn't look like it's losing its grip. It's in full force and in full power, and it's 10 below. And if you stayed out here, it could kill you. But the reality is it's losing its grip because something more powerful than it was acting on it. Yes, it, was, it seemed like it was in full force, but the tilt of the Earth's axis in its orbita- or rotational orbit is stronger than the cold air and the clouds, and the snow. And it didn't matter that snow and clouds and cold was real. Something more powerful was going to act on it and change it. It was losing its grip. Easter, Easter is the celebratory marker that a power stronger than evil, sin, and death has broken into this world, and evil, sin, and death is losing its grip. Now, I know that we can look in our own hearts or in our newsfeed, or at the hospital, and it doesn't look like evil and sin and death is losing its grip because it's real. 
right? It, but just because it's real doesn't mean something more powerful hasn't acted on it and meant that its time is limited. That something more powerful is the resurrection of Jesus himself. When he walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning, the power of evil, sin, and death was broken. Now, winter did lose its grip. Mike was correct. But it came again and again and again and again, right? And we, in our house, have said we never let ourselves have any hope this spring is here until my wife's birthday, which is March 25th. And even then, for the next couple weeks, we're a little bit hesitant, right? Because you get that freak snowstorm on April 2nd, and you're in despair again. Uh, but we are in a story where sin, evil, and death's power has been broken. And that means the inevitable reality is its presence will be gone. No matter what the details of the story are right now for you or for us, for any combination in that. Now, there, is a couple, there are a couple of clues in this text to that. One is the phrase, Jesus the King. You might have said, I've never noticed that phrase before in the Bible so often. Like, well, that's because I changed it from Jesus Christ. In, the, in your English translation, you'll probably say Jesus Christ those five times. But Christ means anointed king. And as Americans and people that are familiar with the Bible often will read right by that word Christ. It means nothing. It's like Jesus the wah, 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 wah. And it's really Jesus the king. Right? So it really says Peter, an apostle of Jesus the king. That has more, like, that has more heft to it. I'm an apostle of the king. Right? Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the King, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, the King from the dead. Why is that important? Because in that place, remember, Caesar was demanding to be king. And the reality is that Caesar was called, would call himself king. And the next Caesar would call himself king. And the one after him, and after him, and after him. Why would they all call themselves king? Because all of the other ones before them died. Jesus is raised from the dead as a king who has broken the power of death and will not, cannot die. That means his kingdom is now an enduring reality. And therefore, he calls the, the Christians in the Roman provinces to the elect exiles, in verse 1, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. It means they're, because they have a king now who's got a new kingdom that cannot end, they are residents of an old kingdom, the Roman Empire, but citizens of a new kingdom. Their first citizenship, therefore, is in this new kingdom. And so whether they are residents of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, the United States of America, Argentina, Russia, Australia, whatever, if you're in Jesus, you are exiles there. If you're a Christian and an American citizen, your American citizenship, as important as it may be to you, is clearly a secondary reality. It must be because you are already a member of another kingdom. Same if you, were, if you lived in Uruguay or Paraguay or Argentina or somewhere else that's not in South America. You, uh, you don't know why I chose those three. But these, we would say in our psychological age, there is no first identity beyond being in this kingdom. Being part of King Jesus' kingdom is now first beyond our, beyond our nationality, beyond our, our citizenship, beyond our race, beyond our gender, everything. It's first. We are in Christ's kingdom. And he has been raised, and his kingdom cannot end. 
We like to quote here the book A Light to the Nations by Michael Goheen, and I pulled a quote out of there. Goheen writes this. The resurrection stands along with the cross at the center of world history, giving history its meaning and direction. In Jesus' return from the grave, something new has begun that will one day fill the earth. The resurrection creates a community that shares in the resurrection of Christ and participates in the powers of the age to come. So that means the resurrection for the Christian isn't just that there's some power available to us out there in the future after we die. The resurrection, as the Bible talks about it, means that that power in the future has come back into the present and begun something that's real now that you are a part of if you're in Jesus. Something has started. It's a historical event where the present, the future power invades the present. If you'll look at that insert again, I put a quote by a guy named Richard Gaffin in there. If you've been around, you know that basically two out of three Easter's I put this quote in your worship booklet. But since nobody can repeat it from memory yet, I'm going to keep doing it. It's really good. You need to know about Richard Gaffin. He is a crusty, old, uh, reformed theologian not given to overstatement. Now, he's, all I'm saying is he's not hyperbolic. He's probably a very nice guy. He's still alive. Not that he would ever hear this, but I just realized I called him crusty and old. Um, but he's not given overstatement. He's very muted. He says this, so it is not an overstatement to say that at the core of their being, in the deepest recesses of who they are, in other words, in their inner self, believers will never be more resurre- re- resurrected than they already are in their inner, inner being. God has done a work in each believer, a work of nothing less than resurrection proportions that will not be undone. Such language, it needs to be stressed, is not just a metaphor. The past resurrection of the inner man is to be understood as realistically and literally as future bodily resurrection. Christian, do you know that if you're in Christ, your internal reality is connected to Jesus in such a way that Ephesians 2 says, in some way you're already seated with him in the heavenly places. Then it's so, that means it's so certain your future body resurrection is completely certain because you're already connected to Jesus so that in order for you not to be resurrected, Jesus would have come back from heaven, be crucified again, and stay in the grave. That's how certain it is. That's why this guy, Richard Gaffin, who's not given overstatement, says, can you believe this? It's really unbelievable if we think about it. We are spiritually connected to Jesus by an unbreakable bond called the Holy Spirit. God connects us to God in the resurrection already. Okay, that's why it comes through the resurrection, this living hope. Now, what is this living hope? First, we have to do a little rehab on the word hope. In English, it's a, it's a weakish word. In the biblical conception, it's very strong. And that, it, the, the biblical word shows up a, at least 80 times in the New Testament. I think it's always translated with our English word hope. But hope, well, hope, we use it like this. I, I read yesterday that the Colts, it's been a couple of weeks since I used the Colts illustration, are about 20 to 1 odds to win the Super Bowl next year. 20 to 1. So, not that you would, but if you bet 100, you might win 2,200 if they win the Super Bowl. Um, I'm not, saying, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that's how the odds work. So you might say, oh, we got some hope. Maybe not a ton, but 20 to 1, we have some hope. You might say, well, 
that's pretty good. There's 19 teams of the 32 that are behind the Colts. So we have more hope than most. Right? So we have hope. But the Buffalo Bills are the 7 to 1 odds. They're the odds on favorite right now. So if you were a Buffalo Bills fan, you might say, oh, I have more hope. I have more hope than a Colts fan that we will win the Super Bowl. That's the way we use the word. It means basically confidence in the midst of uncertainty. I hope I get the raise. I hope I get into school I, you know, applied to. I hope to get a car change, oil change this week or something like that. That is not the way at all the Bible uses the word hope. It's not. Hope in the Bible is defined as a life-shaping certainty of something that just hasn't happened yet. A life hope in the Scripture is a life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet. So, it's 11.42 right now. Do you have confidence that noon today will come? Yeah, you have confidence. Would you say, I, I have hope that noon will come? You wouldn't say that. You'd be like, well, you could, but it'd be weird. Like, I have hope that noon will come. You'd be like, are you feeling okay? What's going on? Um, because you know noon is coming. It just hasn't come yet. You're certain noon is coming because it comes. This is what happens with time. Time passes. Noon will come. I might be still preaching when noon is coming, but it, noon will come, right? You wouldn't say you have hope that noon will come, but that is the way the Bible would talk about it. A certainty of something that just hasn't happened yet, like you are certain that noon will come. That is what our future hope is. It's, it's a certainty of something, not some, you know, I hope. There's a little bit of ambiguity here. Nope. It's something we know is, is coming. Now, what is this living hope? We don't have to go too far. Again, our, our main passage, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is this inheritance? Everything? In fact, it's so grand, it seems like the Bible writers draw back when they come upon it. Because they know they're looking into something that they don't quite have words or imagination to describe. It, it is the resurrection of the body, yes. It is the full enjoyment, the full family enjoyment with God the Father, Christ our brother, and the spirit who dwells in us. It is the removal of sin, evil, and death and the wiping away of every single tear. It is the fulfillment, the true fulfillment of every longing in the human soul. Everything you long for truly will be met. Even a lot of our sinful longings are based in good longings that get twisted. In the renewal of all things, those things untwist and the, the fullness is met. One theologian calls it ever-increasing joy in God at ever-increasing speed. It's the removal of all alienation between us and God and us and other people and even us and ourselves. It's joy inexpressible. Can't give language to it. It's God himself. It's, it's everything, right? So does this mean everything will turn out okay? No. 
It means that everything will turn out far, far better than we even currently have the capacity to imagine right now. That's either true or it's not. And it's staked on one thing. Did Jesus Christ walk out of the tomb on Sunday morning? And if he did, you, friend, in Christ are in a story that ends unimaginably well. It'll be rough in between there, between now and there. Got it. It may be far rougher for some than others. Totally understand it. But it ends unimaginably well. It is imperishable, as it says here. It cannot be destroyed because it's held by God. It is undefiled. It cannot be contaminated by us because Jesus purifies it. It is unfading. It will not become less. If you have an inheritance, you, some of you may have inheritances. That's not a family tradition in my family, but okay, some, some. You know, and you could find the person who is giving you an inheritance and say, can I have it early? Or can I have some of it early? If you got some of your inheritance early and used it, it would be less in the future. Like, well, you could do this with your retirement. It would be a bad idea. Like, maybe should I cash out the retirement, right? You should not do that. But if you did and you used some of it, you would have less when you got there because it would cause it to fade. If you use some of it in the present, the future experience of it would be fading. But notice, this living hope is an unfading hope. So if you use it by bring, letting it bring joy and power and strength to your life now, it doesn't fade in the future. In fact, you might have more appreciation of it in the future. And think about how vibrant hope can empower us right now. If you think about the worst job you ever had, just think for a moment. Do a little, you don't have to say it out loud. You may be at it, right? So just think. I've done lots of dirty jobs, you know, uh, growing up. Uh, I was all kinds of, I repaired sewer lines and roads and all that kind of stuff. And one for one brief time in grad school, I was an aftercare director for a school. That was by far, for me, the very worst job I could imagine. Have a bunch of kids at school for longer than they want to be, to school they don't want to be, give them a bunch of sugar and say, go, Roger, have fun. To me, I, there's people that do that awesome, and some of you are them. That's great. That would be my worst job. Some of you have something else, but imagine your worst job. And somebody would come to you and say, you know, I want you to, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I'll, you do this job for six days a week, 12 hours a day for one year. You do it. It'll be hard. I'll give you, you know, you'll have enough to, to, to live and eat. We'll put, provide for you a place to live and food to eat. And at the end of the year, after six days a week, for 12 hours a day, we will give you $20,000. Most of you would do the little math, think, well, minimum wage, something. I think I'll find another job, thank you very much. Now, you might be really hard up. You may, maybe, maybe there's somebody who say, okay, that seems like a good deal. The worst job I can imagine, 72 hours a week, six days a week uh, for $20,000. Unlikely. Now, I came to you and said, same deal, except this time I will give you $20 million. Some of us, probably most of us would say, you know, those kids aren't so bad. I think I can do that. I'm, you know, it might even, it would change your tenacity. It might even change your attitude. Like, I, I'm going to set my affection on these children. I really like them or whatever this dirty job is. I, I can do it because the, the, uh, the hope at the end is so much bigger, right? 
It's so much bigger. Imagine, imagine if the hope at the end was everything. Everything. More than we could imagine. Better than we could imagine. Farther, longer, with deeper joy and greater riches. I don't just mean gold. I just mean like fullness of life. Imagine if it was everything. Would that not work its way back into our life right now and say, that can change how I see every circumstance in my life. Most of which are far better than the worst job I can imagine. The size and quality of the hope shapes our tenacity. Guys, we get everything. Everything. Because Christ died in our place to give that to us. And now all that is his is ours in our union with him. That's what it is. How do we access this living hope? This, this points to three practical ways we access this living hope. The first, I think, is the best and the easiest. We are, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to or into this living hope. What do we do? Nothing. God caused us to be born again into it. Wow, that's so great. It's not, the, the arrival into it doesn't depend on you. Something outside of you acted on you and put you in this reality called living hope if you're in Christ. About 10 years ago, I was doing some mission work in South Africa and with the organization I was part of. And we flew from Indy to New York City to Dakar, Senegal, on to South Africa. And I remember reading, you know, I needed to sleep on the way going east, not coming back. By the time we were, you know, because when we were leaving in the direction all that. And we were hitting the ground right when we got there. Uh, and so I was trying to sleep on the way over. But I was a little bit jazzed. I couldn't get to sleep. And I, we touched down in Senegal, which is in West Africa. By the way, when you're flying to South Africa from New York City and you get to Africa, you're halfway there. Africa is so big. As you get to Senegal, you're halfway to South Africa from New York City. So we get there, and I'm like, I'm talking to one of our other directors, Jay. I'm like, Jay, I'm kind of nervous. I haven't slept. I need to sleep, blah, blah, blah. Jay's like, hey, my doctor gave me some of these. I'm not saying it's a good idea. Um, it was legitimate sleeping pills. I've never ta- I'd never taken a sleeping pill before. So there's two things I, I don't know. One is what kind of sleeping pill it was. It was legal. I'm not suggesting you do that. The other thing I don't know is anything about the flight from Senegal to South Africa. <laughs> I mean, guys, it's powerful. I don't know if I got good sleep, but I just remember being, you know, and... Wake Jay waking me up. It's like, Roger, we're here. I'm like, where are we? You're not Carmen. You're not my wife. I'm totally out of it. Ooh, that's like an eight to ten hour flight. I was just gone. And I was, we had been placed into South Africa, Johannesburg, eventually Durban. But we've been placed into South Africa. It would be silly for me to think I did that. And I wasn't out there flapping my wings on a plane. I wasn't flying the plane. I wasn't even conscious Something else acted on me in helplessness and put me in this place called South Africa. Guys, if you're in Christ, something outside of you has acted on you apart from your own agency and ability and puts you into this place called living hope. It's a reality, living hope. We're born again into it. Secondly, verse 5, who by the God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Faith. Ongoing, active faith. It's our faith, trust, is the way God guards us. We, we actively take this reality to ourself. We believe it. We think about it. We meditate on it. We act in light of it. We avail ourselves to these, what we call the means of grace, scripture, prayer. We gather and worship so we can be reminded by each other. We have Christian friends who remind us that we have an inheritance. We have a hope. We have a living hope. Right? And it is a living hope, which means at least it can wax and wane. Right? We forget. We forget. We, we forget to operate by faith and trust But it's also a living hope because it is actually Jesus who's alive at the end of the day who is this hope for his people. What would it be if we just uh, did an experiment today, just this afternoon, just lunchtime, right? Let's try an experiment where we just say, "Let's, let's act as if this is true. As if I am already raised up with Christ and I have a future that is so bright I cannot even imagine it. Let's see if that doesn't work its way back into some relationships. Let's, what if uh, this Richard Gaffin quote we, we brought to ourselves that reality, this afternoon, and then when we wake up in the morning and at lunchtime and maybe at community group this week over and over again, those little operations of faith are the way God guards us by bringing that future power back into the present. Reminding us that we have a hope that is that cannot be broken. That cannot be broken. And it brings us, there's a firmness that comes with that kind of hope. I used use this illustration three or four years ago from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Admiral Jim Stockdale was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He was a POW for eight years, which is a really long time. I mean, that's really long. He'd been tortured specifically in depth on 20 different occasions and survived and became a, a, the emotional center for his men. And after he got out, they said, tell us what you saw. You saw so many people make it out, but so many more people didn't. What was the difference? He said, there are two types of persons who did not make it out. There were those who were only pessimistic and had no hope. They, they had no hope at all just from the day one. You know, I know it's going to go bad. It went bad. No hope at all, boom. And he said those who were only optimistic and would not recognize how how bad things actually were. So they they were the ones, he said, who said, I know we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they would say, I know we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving would come and go. And then Easter or Christmas would come again. And he said, and then... They would die of a broken heart. Stockdale says, now he's an admiral, right? So he's, he's a little bit thick-skinned. He said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Let me add the gospel to that just for a second. We must never confuse the hope that we have and we can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the hardest facts of our current reality, 
with that hope, whatever those facts may be. We have the freedom to be radically honest about the present because we have been born into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead who has began a new reality and brought you into it if you're in him. He's brought us in. Let me close with this quote from Tim Keller, his book, Hope in Times of Fear. Keller is a favorite author around here of many of us. He's a pastor in a sister church of ours in New York City. He's retired now. Tim is in his second bout of a different kind of cancer, pancreatic cancer. It looks very bad. He writes this. This is recent. There are the good things of this world, the hard things of this world, and the best things of this world, namely God's love, glory, holiness, and beauty. The Bible's teaching is that the road to the best things is not through the good things, but usually through the hard things, as Jesus himself shows. There is no message more contrary to the way the world understands life or more subversive to its values. How could the world understand it this way? It doesn't have a living hope into which it's been brought, but you do. And so do I. The reason we go to the communion table is because Jesus the King has been raised from the dead. And it's not a dead Savior we're celebrating, but a live Savior who serves us grace over and over and over and as, as a token, as a picture, as a, as a pointer to the radical, firm, undying, living hope that we have. If you're in Christ by faith, this table is open to you. We say taking communion is a way of saying, I want Jesus to be king in my life. I want, the, I want Jesus the king. Whether I have him already, I've had him for years, or I want him fresh for the first time, I want him. If that's you, this table is open to you. What we'll do is I will pray and invite us to the table.